Hello, it's Graphic Policy Radio's Venture Brothers podcast. We're back tonight to talk about the uh, episode eight, which is essentially the finale of Venture Brothers season six. Um, and uh, I'm your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. And joining me as ever is Stephen Atwell. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Stephen being my resident historian, who's also writing an amazing series of articles for graphicpolicy.com looking at the political history within important like Marvel comic books. Definitely want folks to go check that out. Um, and that knowledge base certainly comes into bear and, and handy for today's episode, uh, Venture Brothers episode, Red Means Stop. So let's begin with a little recap. In a suspiciously familiar, grim-looking bathroom, two men wake up chained to pipes. Turns out both men know uh, they're the, the termite and maestro wave each other from the supervillain community, although it's not revealed till later that they do. The Monarch and 21 are down to their final two villains, but 21 doesn't want to kill anymore. Uh, unfortunately, the final villain standing between them and Dr. Venture is the Red Death, a living legend in costume aggressions with a nasty penchant for vaporization. The Monarch goes solo to try to kill the Red Death at a Central Park playground, but when the Red Death turns out to be a fan of his work and a genial suburban dad who manages work-life balance through a firm commitment to keeping his personal and professional lives separate, he can't pull the trigger. 21 and the monarch geek out about the Red Death and come up with a scheme to fake the kidnapping of his wife and kid to get him out of the way, which doesn't go according to plan, of course. Rather than vaporize them, however, the Red Death has a heart-to-heart with the monarch and advises him that he's going to have to murder Venture and his family if he's going to sort out his work-life issues. Dr. Mrs. and Hunter Gathers work out a joint guild OSI operation to draw out the Blue Morpho, who both sides see as disrupting their system of rules-based agonism. Despite some initial conflict, the two sides ultimately cooperate in a sting operation designed around an elaborate system of cosplaying decoys. When the Blue Morpho fails to show up, the two sides decide to have a pool party on Ventec's rooftop. Dr. Mrs. is now once again ready to kill the Blue Morpho. The, while everybody else is busy with the sting operation, Rusty goes to Action Man slash Billy's mom, Action Man and Billy's mom's place for Viel Picada. After laughing at his traumatic memories, Action Man, after laughing at Rusty's traumatic memories, Action Man and Colonel Gentleman spar over <laughs> Action Man's wear baby killing. Rusty talks with Colonel Gentleman about the Blue Morpho while getting annoyed with Billy's winking belief that he is the Blue Morpho. Although I don't know if Rusty knows that that's what he's implying. I think Rusty was just irritated by the winking. Rusty goes home to find the two sides having a pool party, but... After some failed attempts to help each other uh, escape the standard Saw scenario, Maester Wave reveals that he's a butt-only cannibal and murders the termites. <laughs> After the Red Death and the Monarch work out their differences, they stumble across the bathroom. Turns out 21 was keeping the Monarch's rivals in the bathroom in lieu of killing them but Maester Wave either misinterpreted his turkey dinners or was always a raving psychopath. Dr. <laughs> uh, Red Death works out his arching frustrations with the monarch's permission. Cleaning up the basement, so to speak. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, give me your first impression of the uh, episode. So uh, I felt very much of two minds. Like there was some stuff in this episode that I really liked. Um, the Red Death was awesome. I thought the whole pool party thing was really funny. Uh, the saw sequence was like, was pretty, you know, solid. Um, and I liked the sort of Guild OSI uh, pool party, as I said. I did find the like the Blue Morpho stuff, especially Rusty's whole sequence, was intensely frustrating. Not so much because it was bad. Like I think this would have been a perfectly serviceable you know, mid-season episode, but because this is sort of at least temporarily a finale, you know, I got a real sense of, you know, non-closure from this episode, that it felt very much like things were building up, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, having their moment. So I think I'll feel very differently about this episode 
in two years. That's a good point. Um, you know, immediately upon watching the Apple episode, I, I, I felt like this was a really fun, entertaining episode. Uh, I had kind of been warned that the final episode of the season was really not a finale. You know, the last, yes, last week's episode was really more of a finale. So I kind of come to terms with this. So it didn't really catch me off guard that much. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed the episode a great deal. And I mean, honestly, having Clancy Brown do the voice of Red Death is amazing. Clancy Brown is an actor and voice actor. He was the Kieran in um, Highlander. So I guess this episode mm-hmm. is connected to the Christopher Lambert references of <laughs> yesterday, of last week's episode, since that's the uh, Christopher Lambert's antagonist in the Highlander movies. Um, but he's such a great voice actor. He's such a good actor. You've seen him in like everything. If you don't remember who I'm talking about, Google Clancy Brown. Um, but yeah, really fun, really fun episode. And I think that we probably will be getting some kind of a true extravaganza finale type thing uh, coming up, I think. When did you say it, you thought it was going to be? Uh, I think they said like six months from now, but I'm not sure. So long way. But I'll wait. I will wait for you, Venture Brothers. So references, kick us off. Okay, so, I mean, first of all, we have to talk about just the, on the sort of extended piss take of the first Saw movie. Um, (laughs) That, you know, I mean, there was all sorts of stuff about, uh, you know, how people would actually react in that circumstance. The unreality of, you know, people immediately jumping to, uh, you know, cutting their limbs off or eating each other, but also just the way that, like, all of these games and riddles and rules are just, like, that's that's crazy people talk. Like, that's not how most people would generally handle a stressful situation. That's true. Um, and I, sorry, go ahead. I've never seen any of those movies because they say torture porn is the worst thing ever. But um, I think that they, uh, that the writers probably think that too. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and I think, yeah, I think it was, I think it was a very deliberate send up. I mean, especially the whole like turkey dinner versus butt cannibalism thing. <laughs> you know, really does make a mockery of it. It's like, what if you know Jigsaw was not actually, you know, a psychopathic genius, but just an incompetent hostage taker. Uh, who, you know, was nonetheless an excellent chef, and his victims just happened to be crazy people. That's an interesting what if it really is. Yeah, and I was curious, uh, well, I guess we could talk about this in themes, so let's just move on. Um, So the monarch is into uh, hentai anime. (laughs) Uh, Which, of of course. (laughs) Yeah, who don't know, uh, hentai in Japanese means any kind of perverse or bizarre, uh, bizarre sexual desire or act. Uh, but internationally, it's been used as sort of a catch-all term for basically pornographic anime and manga. Um, and what I thought was interesting about that like little offhand reference, given that it's like couched in the same sentence as like the monarch talking about his crumbling marriage, um, is that like the the line that he uses that you know he's into uh hentai because he can't take real women in real relationships is like a very stereotypical kind of how the morning well not even morning news like how the evening news would cover like hentai it's very reductive and kind of bullshit um but that is the and, trope you know, yeah mm-hmm. yeah and you know let's let's call it but it is. It's sex shaming and, you know, all of that nonsense. Um, but, you know, uh, it's kind of not surprising that that's what the monarch's into because he very much has this, like, geeky, uh, geeky, nerdy side to him. I mean, hence the whole wanting to, you know, dress up as Tal Drogo in the bedroom. God, I mean, basically being a supervillain itself, right? Like, of course you are. It, yeah. it was just one of those things where, like, of course you are. He said that, uh, of course you are. Of course you do. So uh, that, that, uh, so th- I think that, that definitely worked. But, God, I worry about his marriage, not because of the hentai, but because of I worry about his marriage. Um, I guess we're going to talk about that in themes. Speaking of sex, 
I have to give you a shout out there, Stephen, because last <laughs> episode you were the person who mentioned that one of the effects of the wandering spider's venom was priapism, i.e. an extended and I assume to be painful long-term erection. And in this episode, your foresight is confirmed um, that indeed that is the situation that the unfortunate 21 has found himself in for days at a time. So sorry about that 21 and congratulations, Stephen Adewell, your knowledge of zoology and entomology successfully predicts the future once again. Um, I can Google. Yay. That's what we're here for people. Um, one of the really visible and awesome references to this episode is the Red Death character. Uh, obviously, the most immediate character that he looks like is the Red Skull. Uh, the Red Skull was invented as a Captain America villain. I realize I'm totally stepping on Steven's territory as the Captain American guy. But okay, keep going. It's okay. I'll um, do the follow-up. <laughs> a Captain America vi- uh, villain, he's a, a Nazi who has a head that is a res. I mean, his head looks like this guy's fucking skull. Um, he's basically considered like a scientific genius, a strategic genius. Um, so it makes sense that the uh, villain who's the hyper competent villain and is really terrifying would be, would look like the red skull. Um, obviously as he's running, flying down fifth Avenue uh, on his horse, he's his like red messy internal bodied outside horse definitely is, you know, evoking the Grim Reaper of legends, but also with his cloak, I kept thinking he looks like the Crimson Ghost. Who's the Crimson Ghost, you might ask? Uh, You know the punk band The Misfits? Their logo, the skull with, like, the the hood on it? That is a still image from the horror classic horror film, The Crimson Ghost. And basically, if you like punk music, you know this logo. The creative team of the show, there's, like, a 800% 800% chance that they're huge fans of the Misfits. There's like no, there's no chance in hell that they're not massive cha- fans of the Misfits. Therefore, we can intuit that this is a reference to that as well. Uh, but also, there's a whole thing that's being called Red Death. Is that he, there's the Edgar Allan Poe story, Mask of the Red Death, which is an excellent short story. Everybody should go read it. It's one of his best pieces of fiction. Um, and it's basically people having a party in the middle of a plague, it deals with the inevitability of death. It's short. It's fucking awesome. Go read it right now. Uh, the short story being short and awesome as opposed to death. Um, so yes. the death only awesome. thing I'd add is death that, uh, you know, the Red Skull, especially his sort of reincarnation uh, when Lee and Kirby brought back Captain America in the 60s, uh, you know, in addition to being uh, a Nazi, uh, he is very much a kind of classic supervillain. You know, he is into giant, you know, interlocking robots and, uh, you know, machines that lift New York City off the ground and ransoming Washington, D.C. and gassing everyone in Las Vegas and wearing uh, and using a cigarette holder and you know, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, swapping bodies with Captain America at one point. Like, you know, to give the guy credit, you know, as a supervillain, he really goes for the kind of over-the-top, uh, you know, Bond villain-esque uh, kind of commitment to the art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get a sense that Red Death is that person in the Venture Brothers universe. Definitely. Definitely. I'm surprised that he would be a sub he would take something from wide whale, but I guess it's because he's kind of semi-retired at this point. So. Yeah. They mentioned that he only works once a year, which is kind of interesting. Almost like Halloween. <laughs> um, so they also mentioned some of Red Death's former um, arches who he uh, has vaporized over the year. And, uh, you know, this is something we're obviously going to talk a lot more about in the, in the theme section. But uh, he mentions uh, Professor Sterling Smart and his army of super soldiers. The Sterling Smart part, I was not quite sure what that was a reference to. But super soldiers and, you know, the Red Skull, that's Captain America, right? Uh, Professor Cadmium, I thought, was a reference to the Metal Man's. Uh, sort of creator and uh, team leader, uh, Dr. Will Magnus, right? 
Yeah, that's, that's a DC Comics team of super um, robots. Right. Um, and then, you know, in terms of uh, New York references, I mean, I laughed out loud when, you know, we got the Central Park playground and the whole kind of, you know, upper middle class Manhattan parent uh, kind of, hub, you know, helicopter parent culture. Um because that is, you know, that is a thing. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially those, um, especially in those, in those playgrounds, uh, one of the things that I thought was kind of funny is like as a, a mechanism for, or sorry, like as a location for super villainy, you're legally not, um, adult men are legally not allowed to be in playgrounds unless they, they're there with a kid. So I was like, it's interesting that, that's where he chooses to try to pull off like a surreptitious assassination because he doesn't have a kid. Yeah. That's why he spotted immediately also in part. I, I also right. was like looking at that scene. That is a specific play field in Central Park. Um, oh, yeah. I've, I've been there when I was a kid. That's what I was going to say. Which one is it? Is it like 86th Street? Is that the one? Yeah, I think so. It's it, it, Is that the one that's named after Diana Ross or is that another Yeah, Diana one? Ross. That's it, Diana Ross. I think that's the uh, one. Yeah, I used to play there all the time when I was a kid. See, that's why I wanted you to do that one, because <laughs> you actually were raised <laughs> in Manhattan. Um, so, I mean, the other piece is that, like, there's a whole status thing around, like, well, who's your babysitter? And, like, the fancier your babysitter, the better or whatever. And so I think it's funny, the idea that, like, if if the monarch really was your babysitter, like, what class does that put you in if you have a supervillain as your babysitter? It's an interesting you know, question. I mean, it, it, especially with the whole kind of culture that the Guild of Climatists and Ten have, it's like, I, I would think that would be a step up. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're doing early childhood education with arching. You know, you got to learn, and the earlier the better. Um, yes. Yeah, another cultural reference. Uh, so when Botch and Ward are uh, in disguise, turns out that all of their uh, disguises are from the 1970s, uh, and apparently they look like Grand Funk Railroad, uh, which is one of those like classic 70s rock bands. I totally see it. I'm also really into the fact I, that they have a box full of sideburns <laughs> that they can yeah. use. Um, although components. looking at photos of Grand Funk Railroad back in the day, I am actually not noticing a lot of fringed leather jackets. Hmm. Uh, they seem to go more in for the sort of uh, V-neck shirt uh, and maybe leather oh, jackets. Yeah. I see that. Um, okay, so take it away with uh, all of the cosplay stuff. So, you know, this is interesting because you had mentioned this as being, you, in this episode we have tons of characters dressing up as other characters because their whole thing is they're having um, the guild, a combination of other guild players and OSI players dressing up as the Venture family to protect them. Um, and you'd label this as cosplay, but it's like, it's not really cosplay though. If you think about it, it's really disguise. Like, because they're using it for a specific purpose, you know, rather than for recreation. Yeah. But it's also, there's an element of pleasure being taken in it. I mean, mm-hmm. for example, the way that like shore leave loves the Brock hair and that mm-hmm. he wants to keep wearing the Brock hair or yeah. that like, the way that like Hank gets into like, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna cosplay Hank and Dean, you know, we need to bust out the classic Hank outfit, you know. Yeah, that was such. That a, I loved them bringing out the old habits. It's a show. It's a reminder, really, of how far the characters have gone since the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. But sorry, anyway. So yeah, uh, Watch and Ward. You know, the 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 guild thugs. You see the most dress up as Hank and Dean. Shirley dresses up as Brock. Colonel Hunter Gathers dresses up as Rusty, which I guess makes sense because they're scrawny uh, and older. <laughs> Phineas Phage from the Guild from the Council of Thirteen or the former Council of Thirteen is Helper, but also kind of a giant that was walking my eye. But he's also like one of the giant walking eyes, which of course are the coolest yeah. things ever. But also just the uh, way that like he actually says like beep boop beep. <laughs> he like tries to do the voice. Just yeah. cracked me up. And then, um, I, you know, just 
as always, to go back to some older references from earlier seasons that, in case folks have missed it, Shore Leave is based on Shipwreck from the G.I. Joe cartoon and toy collection. Um, Shipwreck was like the stereotypical sailor character. Um, And then Hunter Gathers is famous journalist and writer, commentator, Hunter S. Thompson, who's like the best ever, and you should drop everything and go read Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. I know, you thought I was going to say Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but this is an election year, people. Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Uh, Trail. And and specifically, uh, the the episode where uh, Hunter Gathers and Dr. Mrs. meet in Central Park, the outfit that Hunter Gathers is wearing is Hunter Thompson's outfit. Yeah. Down to a T. So they're being really kind of, you know, um, on the nose about it. Which is funny because I always felt like the character's name wasn't very funny and was he's just like super literal and not particular. I just think it's one of the worst names, to be honest, that they've come up with. So the name is so literal, it's almost like, well, yeah, like you're so literal. You don't actually even have to put him in that costume for it to work. But yeah, that is exactly one of his outfits, 100%. Really? Um, I like his name. I don't. I, I get the, it's just, I don't think, yeah, like a hunter-gatherer, like, I get it. I don't, yeah. I, I wanted something wittier. I'm a huge Hunter S. Thompson fan, and I wanted the character named after him to be, so, I wanted the name to be, like, yeah, something Yeah, but sometimes you gotta joke. go with a dumb pun, you know? It's, yeah. it's the OSI way. Um, so, uh, Action Man's grenade with the bang flag, I mean... The character that's sort of made that the most popular or the the most well-known is very much the Joker, who for a long, long time, uh, both sort of, you know, in the comics and in the the Tim Burton Batman, uh, had a gun that shot a a bang flag as opposed to a bullet. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Public and Hammer, you know, they love to sort of think through, like, how would this stuff actually work or what would the downside of this stuff be? And in this case, it's if someone jumps on a grenade with a bang flag, you know, that thing has got to go somewhere. No, no, no. And uh, then, you know, one of, uh, like, you know, it's not a very, uh, it's not a very, like, deep cut reference, but the, the Taken uh, Liam Neeson movies that, you know, I have a certain set of skills and I will use them to destroy you thing. Um, you know, it's it's not, like I said, it's not a deep cut, but if you compare this to the, like, um, Billy as drunk David Hasselhoff, like, it's a lot <laughs> funnier. Uh, yeah. You know, partially because they're, like, again, they're taking the reality of it, which is, you know, if you actually heard someone say that back to you, you know, your response would not be like, "Well, I'm going to be a, a movie villain, uh, a movie villain, and like keep going with my evil plan." It would be like, "I'm scared shitless right now." Yeah, which they nailed in their response. They're like, "Okay, sorry," and they hang up. Yeah. Um. So, if folks might remember from other episodes, I kept mentioning how visibly you could see the Limelight Club, um, in various scenes, street scenes in this show so far, which is that the red steepled church. I've pointed it out a few times. Well, this is the episode where that visual cue paid off because lo and behold, we have uh, Shore Leave taking Hank and Dean down to Limelight um, only to find that Limelight is closed and it's now a boutique shopping mall, as I've already warned our listeners uh, earlier. Remember, this is the sort of valuable knowledge you've come to us for. Um, and I just cracked me up that they actually not only said, like, yes, this is limelight, but they showed, like, oh, no, it's become, it's turned into, like, a super bougie, boring boutique store thing where it used to be, like, it was such an iconic nightclub of the 90s. Like, I cannot overemphasize how iconic it was. Um, and the they and uh, short leave says like you know this is an important coming of age place for you, which is certainly true of lots of folks of us who went to college in the New York area. Um, he says you can see a giant chicken dancing with Richie Rich, typo negative one night fifty cent the next. Now I should explain. Okay, 
I don't know, giant chickens. You definitely also saw people dancing in wacky clothing. They had go-go girls, some of whom were doing their homework at the time. Um, Richie Rich is actually not the comic book character, Richie Rich. Richie Rich uh, is a drag performer and fashion designer who used the stage name Richie Rich based on the comic. Um, I personally met Richie Rich when Richie Rich rescued my wallet out of the back of a New York taxi cab. <laughs> he did. And he called me. It, that, it's a whole other story. The point is New York people. Am I right? Um, Typo Negative was a metal band that had a lot of goth influences and played a number of goth venues, but was definitely not a goth band. I'm still fighting about this in the year 2016. Um, 50 Cent is the hip-hop performer who you've probably heard of. Typo Negative, also yeah. being from New York City, like played a lot. Um, but the point of it being a club where you'd have hip-hop one night and then like metal another night, industrial, like it had just every kind of subculture making an appearance there it was I mean as much as it was like a skeevy place in a lot of ways it was also like the kind of place that people live in New York because it exists in a way and so to have it be closed and turned into a shopping place it it sort of talks about what happens in New York when we lose our unique places and spaces to capitalism yeah and you know it's really noticeable that like Shoreleaf's plan b is to go to CBGB's which yes, was like one of the birthplaces of punk and is now gone. Yeah. You can buy I merchandise with their logos on it, but the actual store itself has been turned into a John Vivardo's men's suit store. And he's right. like a designer of rock and roll. Wasn't there a failed attempt to like get it on the historical register? Yes. Right. It really should have um, been. It's actually kind of shocking that it's not, that it wasn't. Yeah. The uh, facade and, uh, is saved and is in like one of the like the museums or whatever. But yeah, it's it's funny when you when you mentioned the limelight. I I remembered I've actually been there. Ha um, There you but, go. But specifically for a Howard Dean fundraiser that um, uh, was headlined by uh, Gloria Gaynor and. Um, uh, hold Dude, on, what's his name? Uh, what year was this? I think I was there too. Uh, I mean, this when he was running for president? Must have been, yeah, 2004. Oh my God, we so. totally were at the same party and we didn't even know each other. Ha! Small world. Indeed. Just to show you, New York is actually a very small town. Um, so, uh, the, you wanted to ask uh, if any of our listeners knew uh, mm-hmm. where the love scene between the OSI agent and the guild goon uh, came from. Because uh, it was so I trophy. On, mm. Yeah, I looked on Yarn, uh, which is a, I just found out about, it's a website where you can uh, Google uh, search kind of movie clips by uh, dialogue as opposed to by the title of the clip. Oh, um, wow. There were a couple different options, uh, nothing that really felt super right. There was the Russia House, which was a, uh, spy movie, um, and then the third man, uh, but neither of those really seemed to fit. And there was also a whole kind of like gender thing going on. Right, that, that she's a woman, yeah, and you weren't necessarily going to know that from her voice earlier. That's very Shakespeare. But the whole thing, like, how will I know you? It's like a romantic trope, and I just couldn't place it. I, I, I've seen the third man like three times. I don't really recall what that would be really a parallel for there to be honest but yeah, um because that that one does not work thematically like in the movie when he says how will i know you he's talking to some someone that he's going to meet to try to get some information, information from. From. it's yeah, not it's a not. romantic encounter it's definitely like you'll know me from the ribbon in my hair like kind of like a right like that's what this is that's what this is referencing actually that is what this is referencing so i'm going to go google that right now um that that line um, in the comic, uh, there. Oh, uh, Billy is talking. Billy continues to try to explain the blue, blue morpho and, in fact, venture family history to Rusty. This episode, and Billy talks says that in the comics, Blue Morpho was briefly possessed with an alien virus that made him evil, which made me think of a couple of X Men storylines, like the Phalanx Saga where people got a technical organic virus and it tried to take over the world and it made them evil. Or the Brood Saga, 
when these like aliens that look like the alien from aliens like laid eggs in people's stomachs and made them evil and tried to take over the earth. Um, and then Stephen, you thought it could have been like parallax thing from. Yeah. From, from Green Lantern. Um, you, you know, which the, the retcon that they used to, to try to uh, salvage the reputation of Hal Jordan, uh, i.e. kind of undo all the interesting work that they'd done to turn him into a villain uh, was that uh, parallel acts, um, was an evil yellow space bug that had crawled inside of his brain and turned him evil. That happens. Yeah, you know, you got to watch out for, you know, brain bugs. So I mean, so basically there's so many comics tropes that that fits right into. So, themes. And, you know, uh, so uh, let's start with super business because there's not really a whole lot with super science this this. Uh, episodes. In fact, there kind of hasn't been much this season, which I was not necessarily expecting after the first couple episodes. Yeah, it's interesting because we thought that with them having Billy and um, Mr. White, like Pete, like in New York, like supposed to be doing visionary science work and, and also they're running the Apple company, essentially that this would really be an, a season where you'd have more of that. But I don't know. Um, but, you know, we do get some interesting stuff. So let's start with the whole guild OSI love fest. Cause that is something interesting that, you know, they're very much playing with this idea that like, you know, it, both bureaucracies are the same. And ultimately, you know, they're, they're one another's best friends because they both have a stake in perpetuating the structure of rules. Yeah, it's weird. Like I, like I said before, the business model of all of this makes no sense, but it, it's fun, so that's okay. Yeah. Um, speaking of the business model, like I really like the Red Death in this episode, but it was bizarrely confusing. I um, agree. I mean, you know, obviously in in some respects, the Red Death is supposed to be about the whole issue of work-life balance. And like, how do you, how do you maintain a passion for what you do without having it consume your life? Because that's the problem that the monarch has. Uh, you know, we have this great speech from him where he says, it's who I am. Without this hate, I'm nothing. I'm not like you. I can't just turn this off. I'm the man who hates Dr. Venture. Whereas, you know, with the whole kind of working one day a year thing and the sort of sharp division between, you know, his suburban life and his, uh, his arching life, um, the Red Death is kind of his opposite number in that respect. I mean, it's not consistent. Like the advice he gives him, I find to be wildly inconsistent. Right, because, you know, he's – and it's it's confusing because, like, they're fucking around with what the rules are because yes. for the longest time it seemed like the whole point was that archers – arching, you don't kill the person you're arching. And the Red Death is famous for murdering people. And, you know, he's telling the monarch, you know, he has this line, rules, they help us hate which is kind of the best argument for the, like, you know, structured system of aggression that ultimately the Guild and OSI embody. But he seems to, you know, in terms of his actions, be the opposite. So I don't know what's going on with that. He's really inconsistent. But I've actually been – I feel like in a great deal of pop geek culture – when characters go to other characters for advice, actually in media in general, they, they, they get advice that is contradictory. You know, I see that a lot. I, I, um, I really do. It's irritating. Um, so I think that people have a hard time being consistent. Did you have a particular example in mind or just in general? God, I did from just recently. Um, I'll get back to you. Okay. Um, so, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about this episode 
you know, we, we keep getting uh, a slow drip when it comes to, like, what was going on with Jonas and the Blue Morpho. I mean, it seems very clear at this point that, you know, they're really confirming, yes, Jonas turned the Blue Morpho into Vendetta um, because he was, you know, really upset about him dying in the in the plane crash. Yeah. Um and then, you know, that leaves open the question, like, well, how did Vendata go from being a venture cyborg to being a guild, you know, a high-ranking Guild of Calamitous Intent operative? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, like, as I said, I would be mostly kind of okay with all of this were it not for the fact that this is the last episode of the season, because it feels like, you know, they've been teasing Revelation and we haven't really gotten the payoff. Um the other thing is, you know, speaking of the whole um, uh, um, the whole, you know, blue morpho alien virus that made him evil, like, there's definitely something in the background here about, you know, his his liminal status as, you know, hero and villain, right? You know, that he's, he's in that in-between space. Um, that, you know, comics code, right, you can't have that kind of, you know, moral ambiguity that, you know, you mm-hmm. can see on, say, uh, Marvel's uh, Daredevil, right? Yeah, on the TV show, you mean. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, you need something to explain that and allow you to keep a viable, you know, heroic property going. It's really inconsistent, like, whether killing is, I mean, like, Red Death is considered, like, the best villain, and he kills people, Meanwhile, like, you're not allowed to kill people. Like, if, if it turned out that Monarch had been killing people, he would have been in trouble. So it's like, is there a killing license? And you're only allowed to kill so many people at a certain points of time in certain circumstances? Like, how is yeah. that regulated? Yeah, I, I really hope, you know, by the time, when, when they finally do the um, the special, you know, grand finale, whatever, that we get a chance to interview them and ask them some questions about this stuff because it is seriously wrinkling my brain. Um, so failure, our, our other favorite running theme. <laughs> yeah. You had a thought here? Oh, sorry, sure. Um, Sergeant Vatred is continually emasculated in this season and especially in this most recent episode. Um and it's, I wonder if in part he's being punished because the audience is sick of him. Like, the audience, I, so many people I know have complained about how much they're hick, sick, sick of Sergeant Vatred. And when it, be, looked, when it seemed clear that he wasn't going to be central this season because Brock is back, everybody was super happy. But then they noticed that he actually was still around. But he is still around, but he's just a punching bag for Brock and for everybody else. He's constantly getting beaten. He's constantly bruised. He's mocked because his only weapon is he has a flashlight. Um... I don't know. It's interesting. I wonder why they're keeping him around just to be emasculated. Like, we thought he might be going, um, who's the guy from... Uh, Travis Bickle? Thank you. We thought he might be going Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. Like, he'd shave his head and start gunning people and try to kidnap um, a young version of... Jerry Foster. Yeah, I mean, we thought that might happen, but it didn't. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's weird because, like, he, he really has not been a character with an arc this this season, and you know, I, I think you're right that definitely part of this is that you know, the fandom got pretty much done with the shtick of, you know, the reformed pedophile Sergeant Vatred thing, um, and they seem to be reacting to that. I mean, yeah, I, we, I, w- I was bored of him as well, and I'm not somebody who minded him as like a character to start with, but the the joke just sort of kind of got old and they didn't know where to go with it. So now I guess the solution is he should just be a punching bag. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of failure, you know, one of the things I thought, one of the gags that for me really landed this episode is the fact that, you know, 21 really doesn't want to kill anybody anymore. Um, but, you know, the more he tries to be, Nonviolent, the better he does at killing people. Um, 
as a result, you know, his his attempt at sort of non-lethal um, subduing of the monarch's uh, uh, of the monarch's rivals leads to you know massive death and and butt cannibalism. <laughs> um, oh, it's so tragic. Yeah, and, oh, I remember what I wanted to talk about in themes. So here's my question. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Maestro Wave was always crazy, or was it the like continued isolation, human nature to look for patterns thing? Like, you know, because he was clearly like he was going to the effort of making turkey dinners, which like that's a lot of work. A turkey is not a, a fast it's a meal fuck to ton prepare. Of work. Yeah. So I know I, I would have been making them chili and like pasta with like bolognese, like cooking a turkey. That's like way harder to do than the kinds of yeah. things I make on a regular basis. Oh, and uh, speaking of, of, of references, I mean, the little paper hats on the ends of the drumsticks, mm-hmm. that is straight up thing. Warner Brothers. You that, know? Was, that, was, yeah, that was how they used to do them in the 50s, or like because I guess they thought that the actual visible bone was like garish or whatever, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen those actually on a turkey or any kind of meat in my life. No, because we're so not I, old enough. But they exist. I, I mentally associate that entirely with, like, you know, scenes from a Warner Brothers cartoon where yes, someone's starving. If, if you and look at start... an old, if you look at an old, that's a good point. If someone's starving and that's what they see, good point. But also, if you look at an oh, old Oh, and they see other people as turkeys. Yes. Oh, maybe that's, was that what they were going for? I don't know. Hmm. It was cool, though. Um, Okay, so other terms of failure, I mean, obviously the failed sting operation and, you know, the whole scene where uh, Dr. Mrs. like, has gotten herself back to um, wanting to kill uh, the Blue Morpho and misses the button in the elevator. I mean, there's a whole, you know, thing there about, you know, all of this, like, expertise, all of this military, uh, you know, hardware being deployed, and then it just goes nowhere. Yeah, it's sort of strange, but, like, I mean, we knew that this, it was going to fail. I, I actually, part of the episode was wondering if there's any way that it, this thing could go right, if there's some way that the Blue Morpho would end up showing up. And there really wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I noticed in this episode, you know, one of the sort of missing plots this whole season is, you know, I thought for a long time that, like, the Phantom Phantom Limb was doing this, like, gaslighting isn't really the right word for it, but there's, like, continual power plays with Dr. Mrs., where, like, he's trying to run things and use her as a puppet kind of the yeah. whole thing. Mm-hmm. And here he looked like a total schmo. You know, like he just, you know, completely ridiculously obvious and over the top. Um, and, you know, I'm, you know, whereas by contrast, like Dr. Mrs. really, you know, was on top of it this episode, uh, despite the sting not going anywhere. Um, and, you know, we, we haven't really seen them have a confrontation. This is kind of the closest we got. Oh. Yeah, there's going to be some sort of blow up between them. He is continually gaslighting her. He's like a sexist pig. He's just, he's also like on a razor's edge of like losing his shit with rage. He's just very ragey. Um, and yeah. then obviously I side with her because he's such a fucking douche. Yeah, he's awful. And really, he I mean he really is. Like he's always just been a prig and a sexist, and um, just a loathsome villain. And kind of a fake snob too. Yeah. Like someone who pretends to, um, to sophistication that he doesn't really have. Yeah, totally. Speaking of failures, so you know one of the things you see in the flashback when 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 Doc. Ventures to telling the story about Action Man and the grenade and how he lost his kidney. 
is that Rusty Venture threw himself, young Rusty Venture threw himself, and what he thought was a grenade to save the life of his puppy. And, you know, you think about it, and you're like, yeah, I can totally imagine doing that. That's not, like, a crazy thing for a kid to do in the slightest. But do you – it is, regardless, it is very brave. And do you believe that Dr. Venture of the year 2016 would throw his body on a grenade to save anyone, like his actual children? I, I feel like the question of whether Dr. Venture would throw himself on a grenade to save his actual children is like a question. Like, I don't know, maybe he would, but probably not, you know? So at yeah. some point in time in the man's life, the, the heroism and valor got beaten out of him. He used to be a hero, and now he's not. Well, I mean, it, you know, he he was right. You know, a boy adventurer. adventurer. That was it. You know, and that was as much. Um, I mean, that was still traumatic for him, right? You know, he he murdered a man with a set of keys when he was, you know, eleven. Um, but you know, it was clearly like at some point in his life he was good at this, uh, and you know, it seemed to have. Uh, you know, gone certainly by his adolescence. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like, Rusty didn't have a, a whole lot to do this episode. Um, he was there to be kind of talked at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he sort of kind of, you get the sense that he was like, at the end of the day, he was like, fuck it. I'm just going to have a pool party and, you know, have fun. Uh, and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. that's a healthier Maybe that's a healthier response. Yeah, I, I, I uh, God, I just think that, like, I wanted there to be some sort of realization about how things have changed for him. And I wanted there to be some moment where, like, he and Billy, like, Billy is waiting for him, for Doc to, like, say that he's this real hero. And he's not. That's not even in him anymore. I've been waiting for that to pay off in a confrontation or conversation of some time. The whole time I was expecting, like, I don't think I don't think that Rusty knows that Billy thinks he's Blue Morpho. I think he just thinks that Billy is weird. I don't know. I mean, Rusty isn't an idiot, and he he knows the context where all of this started, right? But if, um, wouldn't he have said something to Billy by now? Like, I'm not the Blue Morpho, Jesus Christ. I don't know. I, like, you know, he's he's also not someone who communicates hugely well. I I really think he doesn't. I think he pays so little attention to what other people say and do that he, like, doesn't even know that Billy is insinuating that. Mm. Um, so, nostalgia? Yes. So you had brought that up as a theme, actually. Um, I mean, one of the things we have in this episode is when you have uh, Shirley talking about the the clubs he used to go to in New York and how those are gone and, you know, wanting the boys to relive some of his youth with him. Um, Definitely, like, I thought there would be actually more of this in the show than there was more like, oh, remember when this place was like this? And remember when this place used to be open? Because, I mean, Doc and and Jackson like live in New York and they've lived in New York for a long time. And it's, it's something that counterculture and, and even like whatever, like non counterculture ish people in New York do is reminisce about how all these cool places we love closed and they get closed because the rents went up. They get closed because people were deliberately pushed out of their spaces by the banks. Um, and I, so I thought that it would appear in lots of different ways in the season, but this really was the main one of which it had. Uh, but it's definitely a theme. Additionally, the whole, like, you know, when Hank and Dean's bring out their old outfits for watching Ward to, to put on to disguise as them, that's also a point of, like, remembering how things used to be with them. And in this case, it's more of a marker of how much the characters have grown and changed over time. I mean, folks, remember the first season, the two boys were interchangeable. They didn't really develop their own personalities until later. And the way they settled into their own personalities was really well done. And I think one of the, the things that the show has excelled at. Yeah. And also, you know, they were also permanently, you know, idiots too. Like they've, they've had to, to grow up. 
um, and you know, not necessarily in a, you know in a kind of leave your you know stuff childhood you know best friends behind, but um, you know, in the sense of mature and like develop uh, a personality and interests that separate you from from the rest of your family and mark you out as an individual. Um, and you know, again, I, I sort of feel like with this theme sort of similar to how I do about the season, which is there was some really interesting stuff in the season. Like Dean's whole thing about being into science and becoming a college student. Didn't ultimately get to see a whole lot of that. No, Um, and I really missed that. I wanted to see that. I hope they stay in New York longer. I've loved them Um, being in New York. I want them to stay. We got more with like Hank and actually having a relationship. Um... So I felt like that was more successfully executed. I really, well, I'm really a big fan of the relationship and I want them to keep that up. Uh, Speaking of relationships, should we talk about sexuality? Yes. Uh, So, you know, one of the things, and this is what I thought, uh, Rusty was referring to when he was like winking back at, at Billy is for a while there was this whole thing that like or not for a while since last season there was this thing about how Billy um, told his mom that he and um, Pete are boyfriends because he doesn't want to admit that he's like single Um but also, you know, he thinks that Billy is hot. Um, Did he say that? Yeah. It was um, it was in the season finale of last episode. I remember, I remember him in... not wanting to. I I felt like I felt like he was saying it as a way to be like because me being a grown up and alone and living with this one person for so long is pathetic. But if it's like my partner, then it's not. Is it like how I took it to be. Yeah, but you know that. He also sort of said, you know, and also you're gorgeous. Like he does I, – I, I didn't huh. necessarily mean it in the sense of like he's necessarily attracted to Pete. It's more that, you know, Pete is someone who that his like mom would be into him dating. Right. Uh, you would have – there would be social approval like that of somebody who we accept you dating. Yeah, yeah. Huh. I don't remember yeah. that, but that's interesting. It's, that's, it's, I totally see how somebody would say that like – with regard to their parent, like there's so much pressure to not be single. And I think also like a lot of our relationships are things that don't really classify or get codified as like, I mean, it's God, I hate to like recycle language from fucking Kevin Smith, but like the whole notion of like the heterosexual life partner thing, like, yeah, like people will have like a writing partner, for example, who they'll be working on and intensely and always with for years. Like, that's not really something which necessarily other people will respect as being an intense interpersonal relationship because it's not considered like a part of a formulation of a nuclear fucking family, but it's still completely real and legitimate. And like, you know, mm-hmm. I, it's anyway, so I, I, I think that's an interesting, interesting comment because like, no matter what it is, the scenario, like those, you know, Pete and Billy like have been creative partners for, forever uh and it's a fucked up situation because one of them knows a lot more about one of their pasts than the other um yes it is it is a very bad codependent relationship as folks recall like mr like uh, pete is responsible for billy losing his hand and billy doesn't know that or rather every time billy remembers due to bonking his head uh, Pete bonks it back. Yeah, this is sad and not okay. Uh, so finally, we have uh, we find out that uh, Doctor Jonas Ventures slept with Grace Kelly back in the day. Uh, Grace Kelly, of course, uh, later you know became uh, princess and then queen of Morocco. Monaco. Yeah, I think she was Monaco, queen of Monaco. not Morocco. Sorry, <laughs> there was another celebrity who was became queen of Morocco. No way. Celebrity queen of Morocco. Who am I thinking of? 
Um, well, it wasn't the star of Hitchcock's film Rear Window, Grace Kelly. No, it wasn't. But I am thinking of something. They forced her to stop acting because it wasn't considered regal. Like, how sucky is that? Right. Hmm. Um. All right. I I don't know. I'm I'm having in mind. Uh. I am having it just. Memory is is failing me. All right. Uh, anyway, so uh, with that, I think we're out of topics. Um, yeah, that's my list. I mean, do you want to reflect so, back at all on the season overall, or are we kind of covered? Yeah, that I mean, I think that's I think that's kind of the natural way to go. So, what do you think of this season as a whole? I really enjoyed it. This season reminded me why I'm such a big fan of the show and how much I missed it. I really, I did. You know, it's been so long since there's been something new. I, I hadn't. I didn't know I missed it even. Um, in fact, when I went to go interview the creative team at Comic-Con this year, I actually emailed some of my friends who watched the show to say, hey, I'm going to interview the creative team at Comic-Con. I don't even know what the fuck to ask them anymore. It's been so long since I felt like there was something new to say or reflect on. And now, I mean, just even just based on the first episode, I already was like, oh, right, these are the things I love about the show. This is why it's so enjoyable to me. And I certainly feel like delving into the pod, delving into the show in depth in this podcast for me has been a big part of my additional appreciation of it because it's given me the opportunity to really think about the themes in the show and connect with them. I'm still just like a sucker over the Duran Duran episode and the question. Like <laughs> Billy's monologue at the end explaining the importance of the new romantics and the please, please tell me now ball. Like this season, like Billy is my favorite fucking character now. I, I think Billy is <laughs> probably one of the only people who's like a grown up in this show who's not a terrible human being. Um, I feel a lot of sympathy for him and he's awesome. And I definitely am team Billy. Like I think he's right on a lot of things and I think he's awesome. And Billy is like the all-star character this season. Yeah. Um, I also love this season. I mean, I'm, at the moment, I'm feeling kind of frustrated uh, because I haven't gotten the dramatic climax yet. But they were so inventive this season. So mm-hmm. many, you know, playing with so many different genres and, you know, uh, cultural, you know, touchstones and New York City as a whole that, like, I can't be mad about the fact that we didn't really get a full ending because, you know, the Scorsese episode and the Duran Duran episode and the Andy Warhol episode and the Blue Morpho have been absolutely inspired. So, you know, the worst I'm going to say is I want to see more of the show. I want to know how the story ends. Um, And, you know, by the way, apparently season seven is going to be the final season. Really? Yep. I've been expecting the show to end. So that's not... I'm just surprised I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Um, I was just looking at a whole bunch of uh, interviews. Because um, when I was trying to track down the last couple of references for uh, the show notes. And, uh, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to the special. I hope that season seven, you know, they go out and leave everything on the field. And how often do I make sports metaphors? I don't even know what that means. So very rarely. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I definitely feel like this is a show like that. Eventually ha- you can't keep going on these shows forever. This, this has to end. Um, I'm going to be super sad when it does. I'm intrigued to think about what they might do. What the creators might do after this. I really can't, I, I you know, since as I keep lamenting, they were not given the right to make the Doctor Strange movie, which they should have been. Um, but uh, that was that was like one of the questions I asked them at Comic Con a number of years ago. It was like, what property would you want to work on? And they're like, we should make the Doctor Strange movie. And then everybody in the room was like, wow, Ilana, you asked the best question. And then they were like, wow, guys, you really should make the Doctor Strange movie. And of course, now that they're not doing it, what a loss. But, um, but yeah, I am intrigued to think about what they might do next. Cause I, it's so rare for me to find a creative team who I feel like their sensibilities are so the same as mine 
their like interests are the same as mine, all of their genres, like all the things that they're like fandoms and fascinations are built out of for the same shit that I was raised on. So more mm. more like raised myself on my parents weren't the ones playing typo negative. Um, so yeah, but I didn't know that. Hmm. Well, uh, I think that's it for our episode tonight. Unless you have anything else. No, uh, just that it's been fun doing these uh, podcasts and looking forward to doing them in the future. And can you remind folks where they can find you online? Yes. So uh, you can find me at Stephen Atwell on Twitter. Uh, I write at uh, raceforthearonthrone.wordpress.com and .tumblr.com. And I also write for Graphic Policy. Where can they find you, Alana? I'm at graphicpolicy.com. Um, I uh, am on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn, like the place, uh, which is the best place. And on Tumblr at Ilana Brooklyn with no space. Um, and that is where I am. And Graphic Policy is also on Tumblr as well. And back on Monday, I'll be back with Brett, and we'll be talking about comics by women uh, for Women's History Month. We're probably going to have another guest writer from um, Graphic Policy's team. And, yeah, we'll be talking about awesome comics by women that you should be checking out. So see you on Monday at 10 o'clock. Bye. Bye.